everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree but are lovingly delivered. We also do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's writing bench is Chaz Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 159, Interview with Lynn Harrod. Welcome, Lynn. Hello, Jeannie. How are you doing? I am great. I am so delighted you came out with us. Uh, Lynn is the friend of a friend of you guys have heard us talking about the Oz Project. And it looks like you have written with my friend more than just a little. Yes, yes. We, uh, we're, we're, we're talking, I think we're talking about Nathan, good old Nathan uh, McCoy. Uh, he and I have been partners for a long time since our, our film school days. And we are partners today. We have several projects that we're hoping to get off the ground and uh yeah he is my uh my creative soulmate so to speak that's that's okay that's really interesting to me because um i really struggle to write with anybody else ever in any format he does. um can you can can you talk a bit about how it works for the two of you well um actually uh i feel the same way you do chaz i, I also struggle to collaborate. Nathan and I are partners, but we don't actually write anything together. What we'll do is we'll use each other as bounce boards. And uh, if it's a Nathan McCoy uh, story, he'll bounce ideas off me and, and vice versa. But uh, no, we actually don't collaborate on anything because uh, I, I, I'm with you. I, I kind of want to steer the ship myself. And I, I go to people I trust for feedback. And he's one of those, he's one of the Top of the list kind of guys. Okay, but but that that again leads me into interesting questions because um, you're a screenwriter among other things, mm -hmm. um, and and my notion of I, I I do not do that, but my notion of screenwriting is that it's always collaborative. Well, it uh, it 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 ends up being that way. So the the early when it, when a screenplay is birthed, uh, it is a lonely. <laughs> experience just like anything else it's just like writing anything else late night hours and hours every night by yourself the collaboration begins when the script is actually put into pre-production and then it's highly highly collaborative uh before before that point it's just like any other form of writing really we've we've chatted with christy marks and a couple and a storyboard artists and and yes when once it hits a certain point the committee does take over and things get a life on its own but but you went to school to be a screenwriter too so what school did you go to and how did you decide you were going to be a screenwriter well i uh i went to the los angeles film school i went back uh back in in the early 2000s where i met nathan I, I didn't really decide to be a writer of any kind. It just happened. Uh, strangely enough, uh, friends of mine and, and people I'm related to, they always dreamed of being a writer or a screenwriter. And uh, I suppose they inspired me in a way. But speaking just for myself, I, I write because uh, I got to get these stories out of my head. I just got to <laughs> get them out. And, I, and I, I know you guys know what I'm talking about. You've spoken to enough writers. And you know yourselves that sometimes you just got to get it out. And sometimes it's a screenplay, sometimes it's a novel, and sometimes it's a short story. But, you know, these ideas just kind of come to you, you know. Okay, um, 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 so do you ever start a thing thinking it's a screenplay and decide, no, this needs to be a short story or, or vice versa? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, The Queen's Angel began as a screenplay. Okay. Okay, uh, I was wondering about that in particular because it is very visual and very visceral, and I loved it. <laughs> I was, I was going to ease it into us. You've just finished The Queen's Angel, which people can buy out on Amazon, et cetera, and it's fabulous. Thank you. We were talking over what a great short line you had intro, and if, if you don't mind, I'll read it. Sure. The Queen's Angel is a character study about what happens when a man who's lost his faith is bestowed an astonishing gift and what powerful immoral men will do to take it. I, I love this. The only thing I had after I've read this is I'm not sure he lost his faith, except in the theory that there are many faiths that have that God is both omniscient, omnipotent and omnibenevolent. Mm-hmm. And because I've come from a land involving project management, that's like saying <laughs> that's like something can be cheap, it can be faster, it can be good. Pick two. Right, right. Kind of, of those ideas of a of a divine being, you can have omnibenevolent that isn't omniscient, or you can have omnibenevolent and omniscient but not omnipotent. So, right. how do you want, what do you want to do with all that? Right, and then you know, of course, omnipresence as well. Well, one of the things, uh, one of the things that is uh, discussed throughout the book is faith versus belief. Ooh, and yeah. uh, a lot of folks kind of lump them together. Sure. You have, if you believe in a higher power, you have faith. If you don't, then you don't have faith. The protagonist, uh, Abel Grant of this book, he believes. Not only does he believe, but he has what he considers proof of a higher power. I would say still, firsthand knowledge, yeah. 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 But he still doesn't have faith. Yeah. He still doesn't have faith in it. And that means he doesn't necessarily believe in it. He doesn't believe in, uh, in that maybe we don't deserve it. Maybe, maybe the people who benefit from his gift, they might not deserve it. And that, that shakes his faith. You know, throughout the story, we see him at different stages of his life. And at no point is he a non-believer. He's always devout. It's just a matter of, should I be? That's how I personally define this character in a way that he is... He's lost his faith. He's lost his way. Which is interesting because you, you make it clear, and I don't think and I'm, I'm <laughs> making it weird for anybody else who might pick this up because the man is, is a real honest to goodness, and I don't even want to use the word faith healer, but miracle worker. Yeah, Under many yeah. circumstances, he can produce miracles. And I, I loved one of the things that you established very early is that many people that write about magic powers in books, they, they do that hand-waving magic, whereas... Mm. For something that's somewhat hand-waving, you box it very neatly, and that was something that I liked. Here's the trade. Here's how it works. Here's how the bargain is struck. It can be giving something. It can be taking something. But it's not really transmuting things. It's not. It it really is just a give and take in its purest form. Yeah, yeah. It it really is. uh, And he makes it clear in the story that he he doesn't give anyone anything. He takes away, and he suggests that. He could give, but that it would not be a good thing. <laughs> and, and so, and so uh, yeah, yeah. So a lot of the conventions of religion and just belief in general are kind of examined in how Abel, how he personally lives his life. Yeah. And that was really important to me. I, I wanted to, I wanted to write a genre piece with a little spin on a little twist. And I, and that was one of the things that, really stood out for me when the story kind of presented itself in my brain and I kind of latched onto it. Okay. Um, what, what was it that drew you to the notion of, okay, we can't call it faith healing because he hasn't got faith, um, but 
miracle working? You know, in general, I kind of have, a, and this is something that I discovered looking back at my body of works. I've been writing for almost 30 years now. And, uh, you know, when you look at other writers, like in particular screenwriters, if you, if you buy any book on screenwriting, they all have the basic same premise. You have to create a character. You have to give them a goal, put obstacles in his way. And then there's your story. While you, he or she overcomes obstacles and barriers to achieve his goal. The way I look at it is I, I kind of, I begin at the end. And so I like to start with a character who has goals, who has things that he wants. And I just immediately give him everything he wants. And like, now what's going to happen? Right. And so what he wanted, he wanted this gift. He wanted it and he got it. Boom. So now what are you going to do with it? And that's the kind of storytelling that I'm attracted to is, is what do people do when they get everything they want? Do they live happily ever after? No, they don't. I mean, that's where stories normally end. But that's where my interest peaks when, when the princess marries the prince at the end of the fairy tale. Hmm. I want to know what happens the next day. I want, you know, I, you know, that's, and that's, that's kind of the guiding light for me for all of my writing. I like that. Um, I mean, I, I have always wanted to, I mean, indeed, I have a couple of times I have written stories about what happens in great big fantasy epics after the great battles, after the king has been restored in Minas Tirith. Right. Yeah. You know, what it's like for the ordinary people after that, who've suddenly got a king again after living in a <laughs> republic for, um, and so on. Well, if you think right, The right. Princess Bride, which was a fabulous book and turned into right. a fabulous movie with completely different themes. Completely different. But I remember the cover of the book that I read back in the 80s was what happens when the most beautiful princess in the world marries the handsomest prince in the world and he turns out to be a son of a bitch. Yes. You're right. Yeah, exactly. At the surface, it, that seems like, oh, it's got the conventions of any fairy tale. But you're right. The, uh, the handsome, dashing prince is the villain, you know, and uh, that's that's interesting. That's one of the first children's stories or movies that I can recall that had that little. Yeah, little absolutely. Song. And the henchmen become good guys and friends. And, you know, and so there's little lots of gray areas in that. Yeah, I, I that's the kind of storytelling I like. There's a piece that you have in there that you, you talk a little bit almost like the hero's journey. But in the way that the heroine's journey is described as girl goes off and forms family that helps her meet her goals. And in a weird sort of way, he does collect a family. I, I think Carlos yeah. is very definitely his family. Mercy is very definitely his family. He's got a couple cousins that he has to cut loose along the way, but still, you know, in a loving manner, they're still family. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that. He has his circle. We all have a circle. I, uh, I, I love the ghost you know. of his dead wife. I think I was a little in love with her at the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's something that surprised me. I, I, I really subscribe to the, the Gardner philosophy of writing where I, I almost feel like I, someone else is writing it and I'm just reading the pages every day. And, and I was surprised by the Regina, uh, Abel's wife. As I was writing it, I was like, oh, okay, so she's here in his living room, and, but she's, <laughs> she's not really here. That's Which is interesting. Dead. But she's dead, yeah. It's collected, it's collected and connected to a compliment I wanted to throw your way based on other things I've read recently in that I liked that with this gift, you gave us the box and you explored it and the good and bad. So we really understand it. And there's a ghost and you don't make lots of ghosts in the theme. You don't say anything. It's just you choose carefully what to explain and help me understand and what doesn't need to that keeps the mystery and fun alive. 
And I thought that was really nicely balanced. Thank, thank you for that. Yeah, I think the, you know, if I had any kind of a motivation for that is that I, I didn't want a definitive answer. Is Regina a ghost or is she a figment of Abel's imagination? I wanted the wanted the reader to kind of fill that in. And so the best way to do that is just to play out the scene from his point of view and let the reader kind of figure it out. I mean, the the, uh, the first chapter of the book is actually it's almost directly lifted from a short story from another one of my books. I have a collection of short stories. I wrote it in a way that he has three visitors come see him at the motel. And the first two visitors, he heals them. But it's not clear if he truly does or if it's just a, a massive placebo. Right. And by the third one, it's pretty clear that that there is something there is something going on. And and in the in the novel, I added an extra detail that Carlos experiences it secondhand. And he, because up until that point, Carlos was going completely on faith. He was just following Abel on a mission. But but starting starting at that moment, he sees firsthand that his his belief is is based on something that is genuinely happening. And this is is the short story in of gods and devils and all in between. Yes, yes, uh, book one of that series. <laughs> I was wondering because now I have to go read it. You I see, know. <laughs> as I said, I have to send you a copy. I wrote a triptych called "Of Angels, Silence, and Coffee," which is why I feel so close to you right now. <laughs> yeah, gods and gods and devils uh, and all in between. The very last story in that book is the Queen's Angel. And it's just the first scene of the novel at the a day in the life of our main character. Right. And, and when, when you wrote the short story, was that all you had in mind? And did it become a novel later? Uh, well, earlier, earlier I mentioned to you that this began as a screenplay. Screenplay, yeah. Right. It, it began as a screenplay for a short film. Which would just be that day, yeah? It would just be that day. Right. And it was going to end with the end of that day. And then from there it became, I, I, I wrote, the short story book, and I I really like that short script, and I made it into a short story for the book, and people gravitated toward that story, including people that I do business with and talk with in, in LA, and so I developed it as a feature length screenplay, and then I guess I guess I wasn't done with that, and I that's when I turned it into a novel. I just well, somebody's got to do the novelization of your famous movie. So I, uh, <laughs> you do the novelization in advance of your famous movie. I, I got to know who's going to play Carlos because I'm I'm a little in love with Carlos. Oh well, there are a few ideas, but there is an actor that uh, I'm actually friends with named Mark DeCoscos. Okay, and he's read the screenplay, and he he gave me some really valuable insight on a few little scenes. He's one of those, those folks I mentioned earlier that uh, he's highly intelligent. And I trust his input. And so in my mind, anyway, Carlos is Mark DeCoscos. Excellent. Just the way he looks and talks and moves. Yeah. But honestly, I'm, I'm always open just to hearing like what the readers imagine when they read these characters. I'm curious, like, for example, Jeannie, like what, did, what does Carlos look like to you? Or what did he look like to you? Because you mentioned that you like that character a lot. I, I did, but weirdly, I don't have a Hollywood face on him right now. I almost want him to be an unknown and somebody because that's the sort of role that makes a name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in in a way, is it a? It's kind of a story about Abel, but it's very much Carlos's story too. How do you, how do you go from being you know equivalent of a button man high up in an organization to nearly dying in a car wreck to not dying in a car wreck to following a guy around who heals people. 
Right. Yeah. I, I can see what you're saying. And that was something that I was kind of surprised to kind of get that as well. I think I, my reason, my opinion for that and why Carlos stands out as, you know, a secondary protagonist is that he has a redemption arc, you know, he, he used to be a, a, a terrible person. He used to, he used to, well, he's, let's face it. He's still kind of a terrible person. He, yeah, he's still, he's still kind of as, yes, you're right. I will still uh, break every bone in your body, but I'm not going to kill you. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'll do it lovingly. It just reminded me of the Godfather in the book, you know, part where they're like, you know, Godfather, these men have, dis- these boys have dishonored my daughter. Will you kill them? And in the book, it's like, no, I will not because she is not dead. It is inappropriate for you to ask me to kill them. But he goes through and puts them both in the hospital and maims them right. thoroughly. Right. Because yeah, right. It's, that it's is their, his version of, of uh, that honor. Yeah. Weirdly justice. Mm-hmm. You know, people people don't want justice. They think they do, but they don't. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one of those recurring light motifs of the you know, people think they want justice and they think they want what's fair and they think they want what's good. But do they? Do they really? Do they want do they want good to be done to people that you don't like? Mm. Like. I give money to the ACLU. The ACLU occasionally is obliged to defend things that I absolutely wish weren't real yeah. or true. Yeah. But yeah. things you absolutely abhor. But they are fair about yeah. it. And that's what matters to me yeah. is that fairness. And that's, I think, why I would love Carlos so much. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. That mentality, that thinking, what you just described about Carlos, almost all of the characters from another one of my books uh, kind of feature. There's a book I wrote called Lucky Five. Uh, a novel. Uh, that was the crime thriller with the supernatural twist. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, the five main characters, they have a, a, a life, uh, a through line, kind of like Carlos. And what, you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, people want, they say they want justice, but really they want like a revenge or a, someone getting a comeuppance. It's kind of like, you know, justice is uh, balancing the scales, but nobody really wants the scales balanced. They want the scales tipped in their favor. Of course they do. You know, yeah. and so that's where that justice and revenge confusion comes from. And yeah, Carlos, absolutely. If, if Carlos wasn't following Abel on a life mission, he would be a, a blight on the world. He would, he, but it's, you know, it's that justice for me, not for thee. That's right, scary. right. So what what little sense of justice or, or revenge that he has or balance or goodness, uh, he gets that from Abel. And I, I tried to write it in a way that just imagine if he wasn't as uh, dangerous and scary as he is, just mm-hmm. imagine if he wasn't part of this mission, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and even he revels at the thought of that. Yeah. Even he just, you know. You also handle, I think, some flashbacks beautifully because you illustrate different parts of our of Abel's life, you know, back when he was his wife was alive, things were successful that way. I loved when he first fell in with sort of I'm sorry, I think of it as that Joel Osteen mega church kind of thing. And and yeah. and there's part of me that, that remembered do you remember the movie Pass the Ammo or did you ever see it? I, I did miss that one. No, I didn't okay. See that. Then you and everybody listening needs to go watch Pass the Ammo because Tim Curry plays a televangelist. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, th- th- that, uh, that alone will sell it. Yeah. Tim, Curry, <laughs> Tim Curry plays a televangelist. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> it, you're you're going to love it. But it, it was a little bit of that, that, that character that you had in it, that Goldie, Reverend Goldie. Yeah, Pastor Goldie Reads. Pastor Goldie Reads. I was imagining Tim Curry playing that part somehow (laughs) in my head. Yeah, that, that, yeah, absolutely. It was that moment of the, 
okay, I can make money off of you. And it was a very powerful visceral scene for me when he gets up there and like, how long have you been carting your dead daughter around was just the best. <laughs> yeah. New, yeah. New moment that was so neat. And like, I want to believe and I want to believe in you, but that was pretty much a recurring leitmotif of, I want to believe in you, but only on my own terms. Yeah. 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 That's, that's true. That is, that is how people approach belief. And, you know, in a sense, I guess we, we kind of have to, you, 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 everybody has their own personal relationship with the universe or existence or however we want to word it. There, there's a separate religion for every human being on earth. Yeah, that's, that's like no two people ever actually read the same novel because your, you know, your internal mind transmutes it in different ways. Um, similarly, no two people actually have the same faith. Right. Yeah. Not, ex not, ex not exactly. I mean, they, I was thinking about this right. also in terms of some of the bad guys that they go from, I don't believe in you to, I, I don't believe you can do anything to now I can believe you can do everything. And it, and and it just, it just struck me a little bit of, is there a certain mental type ever so slightly narcissistic or sociopathic that can only really handle absolutes. They don't really sure. do limited tool use. They don't do nuance. They don't do nuance. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. There are characters that are cynical and cynical and cynical and cynical, and suddenly they're all in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that, that really is how they view, they view life in terms of black and white. We're talking about like, uh, like Brennan, who is one of the bad, one of the antagonists of the story. And we have uh, David, you know, the, that old saying, you know, they're hammers and they see everything as nails. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, so they, they would be the, the most cynical people, but then once they, once they turn that corner, they're completely all in. But what hasn't changed that doesn't and this is another recurring motif is just because they now believe just because they now have been have been shown this miraculous thing that doesn't automatically make them good. It doesn't that doesn't change their it does not because their if, morals at all. If you think about it, here's a bunch of bad guys, including that 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 big mega church pastor from the flashback of these are people that know beyond a shadow of a belief that there is something beyond the physical world. And you can call it God, you can call it angel, you can call it, you know, miracles, magic, you know, you can call it a teapot orbiting Venus, what? whatever it happens to be that is the source of this thing, right. you now have to acknowledge that something is different than how you thought it was. Mm -hmm. And I loved the character type. And I think I've seen it before, but I loved how you did it for not just one bad guy. There isn't like one bad guy to defeat the boss fight and it's over. But this is multiple people through the world that want to see, right, I'm going to rearrange the world to fit mine. If this is, has to be my way, because my view has to be right as well. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I truly believe that if the supernatural in, in any capacity was shown to us, it wouldn't automatically make us all like loving brotherhood of angels. It would, it, it, you know, people would still be who they are. I take a look at um, Yosemite. That's the first thing that pops in my head. You know, some people look at Yosemite and it's this breathtaking, majestic place. And other people look at it and say, damn, I wish I could build a shopping mall there. <laughs> I, I wish I wish that I could, you know, because I could build condos here and make so much money. Mm. Who wouldn't want to live in Yosemite in a nice condo looking over the uh, half dome? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So 
so you you show something astonishing to people and there's still going to be good and bad ulterior motives and and so forth and i i think it's the same thing with with miracles and uh with you know the impossible happening and that that seems to be a recurring thread in all of my writing it's you draw people that are still regardless of everything fundamentally people abel is still just this guy who can make mistakes who can fail and and i like that all of it are very real human characters, which is why, you know, if I ever get magic powers, you can be sure there's not very many people that are ever going to know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on a screenplay based on another short story of mine in the Gods and Doubles book that we mentioned. There's a short story called Personal Double. And I am turning that into a feature screenplay. And Nathan McCoy and I... We are collectively only human productions. Mm -hmm. We we are looking to uh, produce that. Okay, cool. And so, among other things, that's that's the th first thing that popped in my head in terms of a write writing. That's the thing I'm working. Can I get you to talk a bit? Because you, the Queen's Angel, you wrote as a short screenplay, then you did made a short story out of it, then you made a full length screenplay, then you made a novel. Can you talk about? the transitions between screenplay and text in that context because you know the, the one thing i know about turning a novel into a screenplay is that there are different rules different needs different requirements which is why most good films made from good novels do not track the novel right yeah yeah uh it's a challenge screenwriting and novel uh writing a novel uh, they're both highly challenging but very very different screenwriting mm. is all about limits you're surrounded by fences okay and you, and you have to pick and choose you have to you have 15 amazing characters you have to pick two you you have like five glorious locations you have to pick one you know and, and because you, it's it's very limited in every way the format length and so with with me with queen's angel it began as a very simple 20 minute script, 20 page script. It just took place at the motel in the beginning. And that is literally all I had at the time for the past 20 years. That idea has been bouncing around in my head. Just this man in a motel and people come to him and it's kind of a secret. And that was it. That is all I had. And when I turned it into, when I went from a short screenplay to a short story, I fleshed it out a tiny bit more. Uh, I gave I gave Abe a little bit more backstory. And then when I turned it into a feature script, I gave Carlos a lot more backstory. And so every time I turned it into another different format, the world and the characters just grew and grew. And I think that was part of the reason why I did it was because I wanted to explore Carlos's backstory and I wanted to explore in great detail, uh, you know, able story. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an unusual way to progress from short script to short story to long script to novel. And I am I am intrigued because usually, you know, we hear I hear screenwriters talking about, as you say, cutting, limiting, drawing lines, and you you seem to have taken the reverse direction where you could expand and reach and stretch and gather more. I really like right. that. Right. <laughs> Yeah, well, my my screenplays don't come from uh, from larger material. They're they're usually original. I've written a couple dozen of them, 
and they all they were all original screenplays and so when i when i wrote like lucky five for example is another novel i wrote that's based on a screenplay it was a screenplay for a, a feature-length film and it got a lot of traction back in the mid 2000s i got a lot of meetings out of it and i chose that as my first novel because so many people gravitated towards it queen's angel was not on the radar at all mm -hmm. uh, until people began talking about it a lot and so i thought well you know maybe this is worth exploring and i so that that came next. It was actually I actually have a roadmap of everything I'm going to write until the day I die. And, uh, I do. I, I I I opened up Apple Keynote, which is Apple's version of PowerPoint, and I just made a little map of everything I'm going to write for the next I, I think like eight years. And Queen's Angel was was several years down the road, and I I bumped it up because I just felt like I got to I got to do it. This is what I keep thinking about. It's I was actually trying to write something else, but I kept thinking about Queen's Angel and Abel and, and Carlos, and I just switched. And I, I really believe in that. I really believe in, you know, on one hand, I believe in the, the discipline of a writer. But on the other hand, I believe in, like, look, if you're not feeling it, put it aside, come back to it later when you do. But in the, in the meantime... I was going to say, that, that's convenient, because what I wanted to ask you is what advice would you give a new writer in all of this? So it sounds yeah. like you've got uh, both, both schools of thought there going at the same time. Yeah, I I, uh, I guess that, yeah, if, if we want to talk about advice, the piece of advice that I always come back to is, um, you know, there's no such thing as writer's block. <laughs> you know, if, if you are not feeling something anymore, then put it aside and focus on something that you are feeling. But the idea is you keep writing. Don't don't let it like, oh, I'm just going to go and uh, watch TV now. Or I'm going to go, you know, hang out with my friends or, you know, just. You want that the discipline is to keep writing. You don't have to write the same thing every day because nothing's wasted. Like everything I've ever written in my life will eventually come to light. There, there's no waste in, in my kitchen. You know, everyone's going <laughs> to serve it all up. I like that. There's no waste in my kitchen. <laughs> I, I, once, I once read that writer's block is like a roadblock. What do you do when you encounter a roadblock? You go around it. Yep. You take right? it on you the steal the cones and you put them in the back of your car <laughs> and you see how far you can get. That's what you do, Jeannie. Basically, when you come across a roadblock, you do something. You don't you don't right. just sit, sit yep. there and wait for them to finish the road. You do something. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you'll get you'll be back on course. It's also that it, it sounds like the habit of doing something is mm -hmm. is the right habit to work on. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 if you don't feel like writing you know novel c today but novel d is really on in your head then work on that for a while and then if you go back to novel c great if not you can finish novel d and <laughs> you know it, it all comes out in the wash i believe because if a story really is nagging at you it will come out my only all i do is type you you have you have totally been sneaking looks into my computer haven't you <laughs> i think clearly <laughs> well, we will put links to the interesting things we've mentioned on this podcast, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fun. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. I, I can't wait. I think we're going to have to have you back to maybe talk about Concepcion and some of the other projects you've been working on, too. Oh, hell yeah. Oh. And, I, and I want to talk to you about self-publishing as against you know, all the other kinds as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. You, you're just going to have to come back. Afraid we'll see you again. Wonderful. Thank you again.
You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene Coffee House, and Arm Street. And hey, thanks for listening. Thank you.